Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Today, we have our very own Patty Durrell, who's going to share with us her story. A little bit about Patty. She is an exercise and self-care coach who is extremely passionate about empowering and challenging people to be their best. She is also the founder and CEO of Rock Solid Fitness, a personal training studio in Dunedin, Florida. Through her younger years, she battled depression, addiction, and being bullied for being overweight. At the age of 18, Patty's depression became too much for her and she attempted suicide. In her mid-20s, someone called her a fat ass and she vowed it would be the last time. Patty joined Weight Watchers, dropped a bunch of weight. She got accepted into a physical therapy assistant program and started to change her life for the better. It was there that she met her soulmate, Dave, who taught her if she's willing to fail but didn't give up, she was capable of accomplishing things that seemed impossible. He taught her this through a strength training program. From that experience, she developed a passion for sharing her newfound gifts of feeling good, being fit, and healthy with others. Patty, Dave, and their cat Pee Wee live in Clearwater, Florida. So welcome, Patty. I am going to read to you the same quote we read to everyone because it's always very relevant. One day you will tell your story about how you've overcome what you're going through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Kara. That quote is so true. And it's why we ask our guests to be vulnerable and share their stories of being brave. And boy, it feels really different being on the other end of this interview here. I know it's, it, it does. Cause I've shared a little bit about me in a previous, or when we talked about bullying and, you know, I have more to tell, but it really does. It's, it's very, um, it humbling. Yeah, it is. And, uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share this with others who might battling depression and feeling very alone. And I think the biggest message is you're not alone. And I think depression can lie in so many of us. And if you've never truly been clinically depressed, people don't understand what it is. And they think you could just snap out of it. And while I believe that's true, I believe we have a choice. Sometimes experiences we have as a child develop certain triggers and go-to for emotions. And if we don't learn skills to change those emotions and change your thinking, it could really bring you into a bad spiral and you feel very alone, like nobody ever understands you because unless like anything, right? Unless somebody else is going through it, they really don't understand. Right. And, and I'm sure at the time it was a struggle to find somebody who could validate that your feelings were real about what you were going through. That's all. that makes it, you feel even more lonely. Kara, you just like totally hit on something that's so true. I kind of grew up in a family where you didn't, you know, you didn't really talk about things that were painful or that were difficult because judgment was such a big thing, such a harsh judgment, like almost like you were maybe faking it or seeking attention or, you know, something else where your feelings didn't kind of matter in a way. And so it is hard to try and find someone who understands if you get the feeling like your feelings don't really matter. Well, it was really um, what mattered, it sounded like, was the feelings or the the comfort of the family and the way the family looked and felt. So if you if your feelings made them uncomfortable, it was probably, you know, it was probably wasn't good for you to share those. Right, right. Or they'd probably, they would deny that you had those feelings. Just suck it up, kid. Yeah, it's kind of exactly true. And, you know, for me, like my mom would always tell me that I was such a happy baby. 
and so content as a baby. Like she would just not even know I was awake and I would just play in my crib by myself and kind of entertain myself. And now I, you know, I know that is my true essence. I am kind of a happy person inside and I love, I love life and I love living life, but that was not who I was, you know, growing up at all, which is fascinating, but I'm, I, I found my true essence again and, and have fallen back in love with myself, maybe, you know, through that, that childlike idea. That's awesome because I've only known you for about two years now. And so I don't know the girl who struggled with depression, loneliness, addiction. So are you ready to take us back to that time? Sure. Like, I think for me, what I remember mostly about feeling, you know, what, what comes with depression, you feel like you're not good enough. You're not worthy of love, those kinds of things. And I grew up in a very Italian family and, you know, I've joked with other Italians that boy, Italians can hold grudges for 60 years and not even remember what the heck the grudge was about. Yeah. And I'm sure it's, it's not just Italians. I'm sure there's other families like that, but that was certainly an experience I had as a little kid, you know, who wasn't talking to who in the family or who was upset with who. And you just definitely didn't want to be on the outside. So you would, for me, I tried to do everything to be on the inside, everything to try and be perfect. And perfectionism doesn't exist. And when you're trying to be perfect and you can't be perfect, then you feel like, well, nothing I do is right. Nothing I do is good enough. When I was in the third grade, you know, and I wanted to say that I love my family and I love my parents and they were the best parents that they could be. And they provided so much love and so much care for all of us. You know, I'm one of five kids and my dad was a police officer and worked really hard to support his family. And my mom was a stay at home mom and worked really hard to support her family too. Where are you in the pecking order? Are you right in the middle? So I am, there's three boys and two girls. And it goes boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. And I am the youngest girl. So I'm number four. Okay. Yeah. Also known in my family growing up as Princess Patty, which became a terrible kind of label for me because if you're held above anyone else, then that means that maybe other people aren't getting enough. And as a kid, I felt like maybe everybody else wasn't getting as much love as me. And that really felt bad. It was probably not true, but that's how it felt to me. You know, those words kind of could be used against you, right? Like, oh, well, you're Princess Patty, so you can get away with anything or everything. And no, I didn't ever want to get away with things. I didn't want to be that kind of a person, right? I just wanted to be like everyone else. So in the third grade, my dad would kind of wake me up or get me up and and put me on the scale. I was a little pudgy as a little girl. And he would kind of let me know that I was overweight. And um, he did that out of love. I know he did. He wanted to help me. He wanted to have me be, you know, beautiful, I guess. But what it taught me was in my head that I wasn't good enough the way I was. I needed to change. I needed to lose weight. And so Fatty Patty became my identity as a really young kid. You know, that's a terrible label to have. I can remember just being tormented by that. So third grade is where that nickname came from, some friends in third grade, or I guess not friends. (laughs) Yeah, that became my label. And you know, kids are cruel, right? And I don't think we get it when we're a kid. We don't understand what we're doing and we're just trying to fit in ourselves. Right. We just want to be not on the other end of that fatty patty label. Right. And so, you, you know, as a kid and even as adults, right, we've talked about bullying in the past. You're bullying someone else to make yourself feel better and to put yourself on a higher, higher list. So I definitely thought that if I could do everything else perfectly, get good grades, be the best flute player, be the best rifle, you know, person on in our marching band, if I could do those other things, you know, not get in trouble and and just kind of be a perfect kid, then that that would make up for anything else that I was missing. And it was a lot of pressure for a little kid. And I can remember having stomach problems. Now I know that's where my stress goes is right to my gut. But as a little kid, I didn't know that. And I I would have like stomach issues. And then I learned from my dad that, uh, you know, if you eat too much, you could throw up. And that was pretty fascinating. I thought, oh, maybe this could help me control my weight. Wow. I could just throw up 
whenever I ate too much. And so I can remember, you know, I doing that. I didn't know it was called bulimia, but that's what it's called. And um, it wasn't very effective. <laughs> you know, so those kinds of things were... What do you mean by that? It just, it didn't work for you because you didn't like that, the idea of that, or you've tried it a couple of times and it just didn't work for you? I, I would do it all the time. Oh, okay. But it didn't, it did not work. It did not okay. control my weight and it did not stop people from calling me fatty patty. Okay. Got it. So, yeah. I don't think it works in anybody really. And so that's kind of a, an addictive kind of behavior. And then, you know, when I grew up, smoking was a big, a big thing. And at 13 years old, I started smoking cigarettes. Everybody else was doing it in my family and it was kind of almost accepted. And, uh, you know, alcohol and drugs were available in my household. So I found those and um, that was a great way to numb myself. And, you know, my house was a crazy house growing up. So I could kind of go under the radar and, and people didn't really know what was happening or what was going on. But that became kind of maybe a way for me to nurture the depression, right? If you're seeking alcohol, cigarettes, and drugs as a young kid, you're certainly not going to find happiness. No, but you're trying to numb the pain. Yeah. So that became like, I didn't recognize it as a, as a problem even really. It just kind of became a thing. I guess I recognized it as a problem because I hit it. You know, it wasn't something I I did out in the open. I can remember like getting my license and, you know, working and having a car so I could work and I would drive to school. There was this place called Beaches Park in Trumbull and it had these big boulders at the end of the parking lot. And sometimes it's before, you know, going to school, I would sit in front of those big boulders and try to get up the nerve to just drive my car right into them because I just felt like I would be better off dead and everyone around me would be better off if I was dead. Oh, God, Patty. It's a really, I'm amazed at the emotion I'm feeling right now over that because it's such a dark, awful place to feel that way. And you know that nobody could understand that. You couldn't tell anybody that, but that was the the feeling about it. Right. Oh my goodness. It makes me sad because I know how awesome you are. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, I, I'm so sorry you felt that way. Keep going. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Kara. You know, and I, I definitely had, you know, I belonged to like the band and we traveled and we had great times, but I was constantly seeking acceptance and love. And, you know, that, that too can get you into a little bit of trouble when you're looking to be accepted or loved. You might, you know, surround yourself with people who might not be the best for you or get into situations that, you know, aren't really great because you just want to belong or be loved by anybody. Yeah. And, you know, my parents were going through their own stuff. And as an adult, I totally can understand what it's like to maybe have a, a marriage that's not working out. And my parents actually got divorced twice and, and married each other twice. So somewhere in there, they loved each other a lot, but they just couldn't make it work. And so growing up, there was a lot of, you know, disharmony between my parents. And it seemed like there wasn't enough love maybe for everybody because not everybody was being loved or shown love in a way. So that was my interpretation of it and my perception. So maybe if I wasn't around, there'd be more love to give because there would be my love to give, right? The love that was shown to me, maybe that would be able to be given to others. And I thought that would be a gift in a way, which is silly looking back on that. But as a kid, you, I mean, I don't know. How else do you process that? You're watching your parents and how they show love and you, you know, with, with each other and their five kids. So I, yeah, I can totally understand as a child being, you know, processing it. That sounds logical to a kid. Like, well, there's not enough love to go around. I see that there's a problem between mom and dad. Maybe it's because they're, they have too many people to love. So if I took myself out of the equation, that might help the situation. You got it, Carrie. You totally got it. And, you know, because I mean, my dad and I were so close growing up. And I just wanted a, any opportunity I had to be with him. I wanted to be with him. And he worked two and three jobs as we were growing up. So he really wasn't around a, a lot. I would literally go to work with him. He would work undercover. 
in some of the department stores and I would be like his little decoy, you know, and it was great. And so I don't, I don't know if you said what your father did for a living. Oh, my dad was a police officer and he was a a detective. So yeah, so it was fun to work undercover and to, you know, learn that, that stuff. But I also recognized that, you know, I felt like maybe if I wasn't with my dad as much, or maybe if he didn't love me as much as he did, he would be able to love my mom more or love my siblings more and give more to them who didn't maybe get as much love and acceptance as I did, or at least that's how I felt growing up. Is that what your siblings told you with the, with their remarks? Did they kind of allude to the fact that you were taking love away from them because you were princess Patty, or did you just think you, you observed that as a kid? That's what you came up with. I think that was the story I told myself really. I mean, I, you know, gosh, you have a brother, so you know what brothers and sisters do. They kind of sometimes argue and fight. And so, you know, if Princess Patty was thrown up in my face, then that would be the story I would tell myself. And it became my story, you know, my real story. And so when I was young, I can remember just my parents not getting along, almost begging my dad to, you know, be happy because I didn't see the family unit as being happy. And I wanted people to be happy. I wanted to be happy. So I um, wanted to go to college. I wanted to go to Colorado. My cousin told me how great Colorado was. I'd never been there. We hardly traveled as a family, but um, I thought it would be pretty cool, all the things he told me about it. So I applied to a bunch of colleges for, of course, a child psychology program, because that's what depressed people want to do. Depressed kids want to get into child psychology. And I got accepted to Denver University. I went out to Colorado and I'll never forget flying out there with my mom. And I remember flying over, getting close to Colorado and it was just like desert land. It was brown. And I was like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? This looks so depressing. I'm already depressed and this looks terrible. (laughs) But my mom flew out with me and we landed and I was nervous and scared. And we set up my dorm room and You know, I was not a happy kid. I could remember looking back on pictures and just seeing the sadness in my face. And my roommate at the time was an alcoholic. So my my roommate in college, I don't remember her name. I remember she was skinny and she was pretty and she had red, beautiful hair and she drank every night. And so I drank with her. We would get drunk. And um, I found, of course, I found the little, you know, drugs that I could find while I was there and still had to get straight A's so I could be, you know, accepted and do well. And so something happened with my first roommate and I got a second roommate and her brother died while she was, while she was in, you know, dorming with me in my dorm room. And then her whole family moved into my dorm room and I was displaced for a while. What? Yeah. So, you know, they didn't really have, I remember she was from New Mexico and her, they didn't really have anywhere to go or they wanted a family support her. I don't know how that worked out, but I was displaced for a little while and put into a different dorm room. And so, you know, I was still seeking love. I would, you know, find any man that would love me and just detach myself and not, you know, it wasn't reciprocated, of course. And one night I just didn't want to do this anymore. I didn't want to feel like I felt and put all the pressure on myself to perform and get good grades. And it was just, you know, better off in my mind to just kill myself. And so I made a phone call. I had a bunch of drugs. I I had uh, chronic headaches at the time. Imagine that. Yeah. I wonder why. I had a bottle full of furanol. Yeah. I mean, it was just, I, I look back on it and it's so obvious that all of these little ailments that I had were just, you know, depression in my body, rebelling on my thoughts. What's uh, furanol? Furanol was something for my headaches. Um, I think it's a painkiller. I don't even really know, but I remember having furanol, a whole, like a bunch of it to get me through the semester. And so I don't know how many pills I took. I don't know how much I drank. I don't know how much pot I smoked that night, but I remember I did as much of everything as I possibly could and called my family. I don't really remember too much of that. Um, my sister-in-law kind of told me about it. I said, I guess I said kind of goodbye to them in a way. I don't know, but yeah. And then next thing I knew, I woke up in some hospital in a hospital bed. I had black shit all over me from pumping my stomach, I guess. 
I had like an IV in. There was a bunch of people around me. My wrists were tied to a bed so I couldn't move. And all I wanted was a cigarette. That's all I wanted. (laughs) I'll never forget. Yeah, you probably felt like shit. (laughs) Yeah, like, okay. Like I tried to kill myself and I couldn't even do that right. Like I didn't even get that right. Like I failed. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh, but I was going to say you I can imagine like you say all you wanted was a cigarette and I'm thinking you probably felt like shit. You felt like you had the worst hangover and you're just like, give me a cigarette so I can get, you know, get through this. That was my thinking. And that's why I laughed, not because of where you were at the time and what you were doing. Sorry. No, Kara, you're, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, and it's kind of ridiculous and laughable to think that here you are in that situation and all you want is a fucking cigarette, right? So I'll never forget like telling whoever was around me, I wanted a cigarette and they were like, well, when you get downstairs, you can have one. You get downstairs. I had no idea what downstairs was. Yeah. And uh, they're talking about Baker Act. I'm like, what is Baker Act? I have no idea what any of this means. So I get, I get downstairs. I, you know, whatever. I Then I recognized, oh, I'm in a psych ward. There's like people around me that are really like involved with some really serious stuff. And there are cameras, you know, in the bathroom, in, in the room, like you were constantly being watched, going to the bathroom, people could see, you know, there were cameras, people could see you. I remember there were two brothers that were there that, you know, their stories of how they tried to take their life and what they did. They were kind of not nice people and they kind of tormented the rest of us in the psych unit there in the hospital. I remember a woman who had told me she set herself on fire. She jumped out of a third story window. I mean, she tried to kill herself so many times and lived. Oh my God. It was, it was just crazy. I, I group therapy. So I stayed for as long as I had to stay there. And um, I got back to the dorm. You know, I realized, God, I don't want to be like the people that were on that psych ward. I think it kind of turned me around. It kind of scared me a little bit. Like, I don't want this life. I think I want to live my life. I want to like not be like these other people are. And so it kind of was good for me in a way to have that happen because I recognized that the life that these people had being depressed and trying to kill themselves and take their life was not the kind of life that I wanted. And so, well, it sounds like, sounds like some of them were like angry too. Like, and I don't know if it's just, they were angry people in general, angry that they didn't succeed with what they were doing. But do you remember how long you were in the psych ward and did your family visit? I mean, I know they were across the country, so it wasn't like they can just drive over there. But did they have a chance to visit while you were there? It's so fascinating that you asked that, Kara, because I don't I don't remember. Like, I think I was able to make a phone call. I think I called my dad. Nobody visited me while I was in the hospital. Right. Well, I was in the psych ward. Nobody, nobody visited. I don't remember a ton, but my dad did fly out. My parents were divorced. I was, or they were separated. I was living with my dad before I went to college. So I was, you know, I stayed with my dad for, I don't know, maybe a year. And uh, he flew out. And I remember, I'll never forget the look on my father's face. Like he was blaming himself, right? Like he should have known, he should have seen the signs. He stayed with me for a little while, and then he flew back um, to Connecticut. He was extremely distraught over the whole situation. When he flew back, I had pretty significant check-ins that I had to make with the, the RA on the floor, resident assistant, you know, who was in charge of our floor in the dorm. I had to check with, in with her every day. I had to check in at the administration office every day. Like, the, the college didn't know how to handle me. You know, they didn't know what to do with me. And so I had restrictions like nobody else did at the college, or at least that's how I felt. Like I, I was read the riot act. Like if we ever find you, you know, drinking, if we ever find you doing this, we're going to kick you out of the, the college and blah, blah, blah. So I was doing that and I was going to school, you know, going to my classes and doing really well. And I had this older friend who was in law program there. And there was a birthday party on our floor one night and he and I drank some wine and I got drunk and I passed out in my dorm room. And when the RA came and checked on me and saw me passed out, she called someone. 
the story that I remember is that they found me running up and down the halls saying that I was going to kill myself. And meanwhile, I was passed out. Uh, ambulance came with a straitjacket. They put me in a straitjacket. They brought me to Denver General. My mother and sister were coming to visit me at the time after, you know, I had had tried to kill myself and was in the psych ward. They, they were coming out. My sister was pregnant. I was strapped to a gurney in the hallway at Denver General Hospital with my arms and legs tied to the gurney. And I was like, my sister and my mom are coming, you know, to visit me. They were in flight and somehow they found out where I was and they showed up at the hospital. And I was pretty much at that point kicked out of the college, kicked out of Denver, told never to come back. Wow. Yeah. That that there's like a a whole segment on how your college did you a disservice. Now, I can totally understand wanting to check up on you, but an RA isn't trained in suicide. I was an RA. We're not really trained in suicide prevention. And just the way you were almost treated, it sounds like a like a little bit of a criminal. <laughs> it's kind of how I felt, right? Yeah. I mean, there really wasn't any sympathy, empathy, like, you know, there. It was just this we this can't happen on our watch because what they'd get in trouble as an institution with there being a statistic that there was some I mean that's how I'm taking it that there's a statistic out there that says someone committed suicide on their property that does it's not a good look for incoming freshmen yeah you know and and when you're a kid right you don't think about that like I, no. I totally wasn't thinking about that I was probably just thinking more about myself and my own situation but I I didn't I didn't feel like they didn't know how to deal with me or handle me. And lack, um, of, I lack of compassion. That's the word I was looking for. Compassion. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking 1984, you know, and things are so different. Thank goodness. I mean, suicide. I also remember like somebody telling me at, at the, uh, in the psych unit, well, you know, you could be arrested. I'm like arrested. They're like, yeah, you know, somebody was doing the harm and somebody was receiving the harm. And so you're the one that did the harm. And I was like, this is so confusing. I don't understand so what confusing. they're trying, trying to tell me. Would, wouldn't you have to press charges against yourself for assault and battery or something? That's <laughs> so <laughs> crazy. So yeah, so I was, uh, I went home. I remember, you know, having to see a psych psychiatrist or psychologist or someone. And um, that was just completely ridiculous to me. He didn't listen to me. He didn't really care about me. He would play with the change in his pockets. He would look at his pens. He would, it was just insanely bizarre. I remember he asked me to babysit for his kids. It, it was just so interestingly weird to me. And I was on like, you know, just felt like I didn't have any freedom. And boy, freedom is such a big, huge thing in my life. I know. So my brother lived in, in uh, he was in the Air Force and he lived in New York, Rome, New York. So I decided I'd go, go live near there. He was awesome. He and his wife took me in and boy, they were just amazing people for me and loved me and supported me. But I, I want to back up and say when I got home, my, my dad didn't know. He, I don't think he wanted to tell anybody that, you know, I tried to take my own life. And so he made up the story that I was in a bad car accident and that's why I had to come home. And so immediately I felt like, Oh my God, there's a lot of shame around this. You know, I, I obviously there's, this is not something that, you know, is accepted when I started to get asked about, you know, what happened, what, you know, and I started to learn that people were told I was in a car accident. I was very, very confused about all that. And so I set out, I found my own, my own way. I kind of, you know, moved out of my brother's house and got a job and got really involved in drugs. And boy, that was so like freeing and liberating. And I was the life of the party and there was always a party and it was fun and I was accepted and I was loved and it was really bad, but really fun. <laughs> And I don't recommend it, but boy, I kind of don't regret it in a way. It, it helped me become who I am today. So it was still, you were still on the train of like masking the, you know, trying to be perfect. And, you know, when you fell short or you still had some emptiness inside, but you were still working on masking um, those feelings, numbing the feelings. I guess I didn't look at it that way at the time, right? I looked at it as fun. I'm living my life. Yeah, I'm not. Yep. I'm not going to be depressed anymore. I'm going to, I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to find friends. I was in a new area. It was kind of, it was 
fun in a way. But then like any, you know, I started to experience more different kinds of drugs and got really into it. And, you know, I can never, I'll never forget the day that in the middle of the night, who knows what time, three, four o'clock in the morning, I was driving a girlfriend to get some more cocaine. And I was the driver. She, she was the hookup and she went into an apartment for a long time. And when she came out, she was all beat up. And so she was, you know, raped, whatever, but she got the drugs. Oh my God. And it was just awful. And I thought, oh my God, like, what am I doing? I've got to get out of this crowd and I've got to get myself, you know, together. And so I moved out of that area and, you know, it was a long journey, a long journey of decreasing the, you know, maybe I wasn't doing cocaine and pills and uh, some hardcore drugs, but it was really hard to get away from smoking cigarettes and smoking pot and drinking alcohol, like just too excessive, you know, and it took a long time to get away from that. And I finally did. And thank goodness. Yeah. I think um, the part of, of not loving my body and not that being my identity, that I had to be sexually attractive through my body. I think that, you know, along with the drugs and the addiction came, you know, just seeking acceptance of my body. And so finding people who would love me in that way, but really never loved me or really never. And so it was a interesting thing because I was trying to have other people love me so that I could love. And I think that it wasn't until I was 55 years old and said, you are going to fall in love with yourself. And I forced myself to stand in front of the mirror and look at me and say, you are beautiful, that I finally did fall in love with me. So yeah, depression is something that I know is inside me and it comes up. And now I know how to deal with it through gratitude. And when you are extremely depressed and you feel like your life doesn't matter when you can turn that around and start to say, okay, hold on a second. Like I have a roof over my head. I have enough food in my refrigerator. I have shelter. Like I have more clothes than I need. I have friends that love me. I have a husband who loves me, you know, and you start to just go through the basics. I have running water. I have hot running water. So many things that so many people don't have. And I'm a pretty awesome person. There's really nothing wrong with me. And you start to build yourself up and you exercise that muscle, that self-love muscle. And you start to recognize that there's this itty bitty shitty committee that lives in your head and you have control over that. And you can say, yeah, no, I get it, Miss Perfectionist, that you're trying to show up to help me, but really you get in the way. So I'm in charge now. I got this. And that's liberating. I mean, to live life loving yourself and loving life without drugs and alcohol and all the other things in excess is um is is great. And so we talk about that all the time, Kara. You just got to get in your own head and rewrite your stories, you know, love yourself first because nobody else can provide that for you. We just did an interview with a woman, uh, Taylor, who said she, you know, she will often talk to herself and say, you know, okay, you made a mistake, but you showed up and you tried and you can try again. And so just, it's not that you're a bad person. You just made a mistake here. Maybe you said something wrong, but you can always go back and say it a different way. So it's trying to take, you know, cause we perfectionists think it's just this huge thing when we make a mistake. It's like, that's it. The world is over, but no, it's just a, it's just a mistake. And you have the opportunity most times to make it right or apologize or, you know, whatever needs to be done or just say, okay, I made a mistake and let's move on. It doesn't have to be this huge thing, but that's, it's, I guess that's what you're saying. And that's very helpful in, in right sizing something so that it doesn't lead you to the darker places of depression. Correct. Yeah. It's like, you know, okay, you made a, you made a mistake, but you are not a mistake. I think the story I told myself was every time I made a mistake, I was a mistake. Yeah. Every time I wasn't perfect, I didn't, I wasn't worthy, you know? And so those became my stories that I developed in my head at a young age. And I think that's, you know, that's fascinating that at a young age, we start to tell ourselves those things, but I'm not, I mean, everybody does that. I'm not alone. We all do that. 
And um, we have different coping mechanisms and, and sometimes they're healthy and sometimes they're not. And it takes practice to be able to take a negative thought and turn yourself around from going into that deep, dark place. And as you said in the beginning, people who are who have um, been clinically depressed and have that in their background, it's it's not just a matter of, well, just be happy for what you have. You know, it made me think about there's mental health is a is they're making a bigger push in our society about taking care of your mental health these days. Um, because a lot of people, famous people and athletes have brought that to the forefront in the last year or so. So now there are like there are online companies, mental health companies that will do um, have sessions with people and they've had they've had commercials. And I don't know if you've seen any of these commercials, but there'll be a person who talks about being, you know, having depression issues. And then they'll show like one by one, like all their friends, like, well, just snap out of it. And then the next person's like, well, think about so many people, other people that have it worse than you. And they think they're being helpful. And the person's just sitting there like, yeah, that doesn't help. Like it, 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 there is no snap out of it there, you know, that someone, obviously you, you need to speak with somebody outside of your immediate circle who can be objective and, you know, validate your feeling. Yeah. And I think we all have little parts inside of us, right. That, that get triggered and, and, uh, you know, I have a depression part inside of me and it gets triggered. And when I, when it gets triggered, I need to, you know, take care of it and love it and understand it and let it know it's going to be okay. It always is okay. And that my higher, happier self is going to take over and, and not to worry. So those are great coping coping skills for sure. And, you know, it is fascinating because, you know, we, we see it in famous people, right? It looks like they have everything that anybody else would want to have a happy, fulfilled life. And they take their life, you know, they kill themselves, you know, Robin Williams, right? I mean, there, people would die, right? Well, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that. You can scratch that. <laughs> people would give anything to have what other people's have, they, they think, but they can't get inside their head and see the torment that they put themselves through. Because really, we put ourselves through it. We put ourselves through the torment by the stories we tell ourselves in our own head. Yeah. And I think social media, I think if I grew up with social media and was bullied on social media about fatty patty and you know, the, the way things appear on social media. I, I can remember, you know, seeing a post by a bodybuilder, a female bodybuilder. She was an attorney. She had, it looked like she had everything going on, man. She was, she had an amazing body. She was beautiful. She was successful. And according to her social media, her life was perfect and she killed herself. Wow. And so we have this, oh, our own ideas of perfectionism. And then we have society and social media, you know, kind of setting different bars for us. And unfortunately, we compare ourselves more than we just prepare ourselves. And I think that gets us into a lot of trouble. Do you see that in your work at the fitness center at Rock Solid Fitness? Do you see, do you have any clients? And of course, we don't want you to name any names, but who have the tendency to be, try to be perfectionist when it comes to their body and how they look while they're, you know, working out? Oh, a hundred percent. And I think that women will reveal it more than men. And I think women are more, you know, I think that we're in the position of concentrating more on how we look. I think there's more pressure on women to look a certain way. Gosh, we even have to put on makeup to look a certain way mm. and, you know, fix our hair, you know, blow dry. I mean, men don't go through all of that to, to, you know, show up um, and to be beautiful and neat and put together. So I do, I see that a lot. It breaks my heart, you know, when, when people are talking negatively about themselves, I think because I, I can empathize with that and gosh, we're all just perfectly imperfect, just the way we are. And if you're doing something to improve your health and fitness, then you should be patting yourself on the back and, you know, talking yourself up. You're making a difference in yourself. You're changing yourself. And striving to be perfect is impossible. You'll never get there. And whatever perfectionism means to someone is a high 
high bar, but I think I try to reinforce, you know, for people that they are perfectly imperfect and we're all a work in progress and we're our job here is to be happy on this earth, not to be striving to be happy, but to be happy right now. Happiness isn't something that's going to come later when you, you know, when you lose 10 pounds or you get that job. I mean, happiness comes from within. Yeah. Amen, sister. Yeah. People won't even, they don't even want to step on the scale. Like the scale number defines them more than who they are as a person. So yeah, I see that here, unfortunately. Yeah. And just, just to clarify, if people are listening, the scale that Patty's talking about, her scale is, it gives you a number, but it also breaks it down and says, how much does each arm weigh? How much does each leg weigh? How much does your torso weigh? How much, what is your skeletal muscle mass versus your fat versus, you know, this, that, and the other thing. So it breaks everything down. So it's not just a number. You, your number can go up but your body could look better yeah. because you have more muscle. So, you know, this isn't about fitness. This is, but this is about feeling good. And I had a question and it escapes me. Oh, I know what it is. So I wanted to ask about what I read in your bio in the beginning when you were in your mid twenties. Do you remember who called you a fat ass or was it a passing comment uh, uh, and a stranger? And again, you don't have to tell us who it was, but do you remember that it sounds like it was a pivotal point for you. Do you remember it? And can you tell us about that? Okay. I remember it vividly. I was, yeah, so I was over fat. I was with a boyfriend that, and and we were going to get married and I was way too young to even think about it. But, you know, I wanted to be loved. And we had just, his his sister was a model in England and we had just picked her up from the airport and I was pumping gas. I'll never forget this, Kara, ever. And I had my back and my butt to the car. And um, they weren't from America. They were from a different country. And so I can remember her saying to her brother, I can't believe you're with an American. And I can't believe you're with an American with such a fat ass. Look at the fat ass on that American. And I could hear them in the car talking about it. And I, I remember we were supposed to go to dinner that night. And I was like, I am not putting on a dress. I am not putting on any clothes and feeling bad about how I look and how I feel going out with this beautiful woman to, to dinner. Like I remember not just not doing that. And so in my memory, the next day I called Weight Watchers, it was probably weeks later, but yeah, Weight Watchers back then taught me, you know, that provolone, pepperoni, salami rolled up and dunked in a Hellman's mayonnaise jar probably wasn't the best snack. You know, that's how I grew up. So they taught me about food and stuff and really changed my life. They taught me about protein and carbohydrates and fruit and vegetables and all kinds of other things. You know, growing up, salad to me was iceberg, lettuce, tomato, cucumbers, and oil and vinegar dressing. Well, I didn't like any of those ingredients, so I didn't ever eat it. Oh, and black olives. Black olives are also in there. I just, (laughs) I hated all of that stuff. So I wasn't, uh, you know, those were mostly the vegetables we had. And my mom was a great cook and she was amazing with that. And I'm sure I ate other vegetables, but I learned about it. It was also Italian cooking and I'm half Italian and the, the best food came from the Italian side of my family. And, but it's heavy. Mm-hmm. It's breads and pastas and heavy sauces and it's delicious. But yeah, talk, talk to a, an Italian about trying to lose weight or, or not even just lose weight, just eat healthier. And I don't know, they just, what, what do they do? <laughs> do they use fat-free dressing, <laughs> but you eat the same stuff? I don't know. Or whole wheat pasta instead. I mean, yeah, it's, it's when you're brought up that way. And then also Italians love to show their love by feeding you. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a funny side story, Kara. You know, I remember my grandma, she was pretty, you know, very judgmental. My, my family's very, very judgmental. And so that's where I developed my judge of myself, just extremely judgmental and would tell you all about it, would tell you who you are, how you are. And, and it's, you know, just tell you all about yourself. So I can remember her, you know, when I would go visit her, she would always kind of let me know that I was fat. And I wasn't, I wasn't the only one in the family that was over fat, but for some reason I got a lot of attention for it. She would tell me that. And then when I lost, she, you know, she'd be like, what's wrong? You're look at you, you you know, you got some weight on you, you know, maybe too much. Come on over here. Let me feed you. Right. That was always the answer. Let me feed you. (laughs) 
didn't make any sense. Never made any sense. But then when I lost a bunch of weight and I saw her, she was like, oh my God, what happened to you? You're too skinny. Come on over here. Let me feed you. Yep. And you're right. So that was out of love, right? That's how we, we express love was, was through food. Yeah. So grandma, when am I going to be just right for you? Yeah. Never. No, probably not. No. Ever. That grandma was really, I think, pivotal in a lot of my judge too. You know, when you hear people judging others, you start to understand, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what we do. We judge other people. And oh my God, I got to judge myself here. So if I'm judging me, I got to judge others. I think that's just where it all comes from. Yeah. My opinion can only help you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Somehow. And so... Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think that's been that whole event in my life was a pivotal thing for me. I think the depression, the suicide, the drugs, the friends that I met along the way, the people I met along the way, they totally were my gifts in life. And that experience was a gift in my life because I would not be the person I am today. I would not be so empathetic. I would not be um, on such a journey my entire life to just, you know, get to the bottom of it and figure out how to just have such a happy, get back to my happy essence and create some really great boundaries in my own head and in my own life. So, yeah, I would have never met you, Kara. I know. I know. I'm, and for that, I'm grateful. I'm so glad that you did not succeed in your quest to end your life because I certainly would be missing out. Thank you for that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I mean that. I know you do. Your So your journey with Weight Watchers sounds like helped you become healthier physically. And I'm guessing mentally. Am I correct in that? Definitely. Get, get more confidence maybe with, with you know, you getting up, having more control over your, at least who you are physically. A hundred percent. I mean, I remember, you know, I, yeah, I lost some weight and then I met my husband in school and I still couldn't lose some weight. And I was really physically active going through school. I, I loaded trucks at UPS and I took and taught karate and I went to the gym with my karate instructor and I actually tended bar. So I was working like three jobs, going to school full time. And so I was very, very active and busy, but I couldn't drop, like, I just couldn't drop this last 20 or 25 pounds I had. And I met my husband and I was belly aching to him about it. Obviously, he wasn't my husband. He was my anatomy and physiology lab partner. <laughs> He's like, let me let me show you the style of training I've been doing. And he turned me on to this style of training that literally changed my life. It changed, you know, my body composition. I started to build muscle. The way that the program is done, it, it, you kind of fail every time. But then the next time you come in, you succeed. So you learn that failure is success and it's not such a bad word. And it's kind of what you want to do. You, you want to get to the point of failing so that you could be successful the next time. And it just amazed me what my body could do. And then I started to love my body and I would put a bikini on it and I would actually wear it in public and put on dresses and I felt good about myself. But you know what? I still didn't love myself. I still had this itty bitty shitty committee in my head, this judge that still was like, it's never good enough. You know, like you look at yourself and you'll find, well, those saddlebags are big or, you know, I have bad acne, you know, like, oh my God, look at that. You'd find everything wrong instead of finding everything right. Yeah. Yeah. But it did. It changed my life. And I just wanted to share that with everybody because I never knew what feeling confident was about or liking the house I lived in was about. And so you just want to share that with everybody because you know everyone can can do that. Maybe they don't want to put in the work, but if they were willing to, they could get there. That's awesome. Yeah. Was, yeah. Thank you, Kara. And it's just, it's not all about just physically how you look, but it was also the confidence that you gained just from, you know, taking control of your life and not trying to and, you know, getting out from under that itty bitty shitty committee eventually and not letting it rule you. Yeah. Getting away from the blame. Right. Because I think that's what happens. You blame your circumstances. You blame the family situation. You blame whatever. There's it's, you know, as a kid, especially, I don't think you will understand that you have control over stuff. So you you got to find a reason for stuff. So you just start blaming things and people and circumstances. Right. And then you realize, wait a second, I am a little bit in control of this. I 
I can change things. Yeah. You have a, you have a part in it and your part may just be how you react to it, but you can change your way. Yeah. Of thinking about it and then choose not to participate in it, whatever it may be, or, you know, maybe distance yourself. Some people who are bad influences, which are also very difficult, especially if it's family, but if it's better for your mental and physical health, then recognizing that, but that, that also takes practice and is a process. Oh yeah. I mean, I think having boundaries with people has been the hardest thing for me because, you know, people that I love and I want in my life, I really want them in my life. And when you don't, you know, you don't have control over that. And so sometimes I will hang on to a relationship that's toxic or I'll keep going back for more because I just want to be I want that person in my life. I want that person, you know, to be a part of my life and be connected to that person. And I think it's taken me, you know, again, 54, 55 years to realize that that's not healthy. It's just not healthy. And it's okay to just have distance if that's what's necessary. And still, those people can be in your life, but, you know, I don't need to be a a doormat and I don't need to be kind of abused in a way where I'm not respected and loved the way I, I want to be respected and loved. And that's a tough boundary. That's been a really tough boundary for me. I'm very loyal and I'm very, very much love people and I'm very empathetic. So I don't understand when somebody would treat me in a really awful way. Like, do they not understand what they're saying? Do they not understand how that would feel? How would they like it themselves if they, you know, talk to themselves that way? And while I'm saying that, I too have that tendency. I'm not perfect. I'm a work in progress. You know, I still can be triggered and react in a way that I've been, you know, accustomed to or that go to from, you know, when you're forming your reactions in your life when you're a kid. It's hard to rewire yourself, like you said, to recognize it and to say, okay, I made a mistake. I can apologize for this. I can let let people know that I'm not. I'm not happy the way I showed up or I'm sorry for that. My part got triggered and I reacted in a way that I'm not proud of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and we've talked about this, but you have a great attitude about people who, you know, let's say I've complained about somebody who's like, can you believe they said that to me or they did that or blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, I've even complained about sometimes the way people have treated you in the past and you have a great response. You're like, Kara, we're all doing the best we can. And you just really give them grace and the benefit of the doubt. So, you know, like we've said before, hurt people hurt people. And you are just so, you have so much compassion because you see that there's probably something else going on that has nothing to do with you or me. And that's probably where their stuff is coming from. It's, it's a great reminder when you say it, because I do have a tendency of being like, well, up yours. I'm, I'm done with you. <laughs> and like, Kara, you know, I'm, we're all doing the best we can. I'm like, damn it. You're right. <laughs> you are. I guess, I guess I, I give, I give that to other people because I need to give it to myself. Mm. And I think that's the biggest lesson for me is, yeah, I'm, we're all doing the best we can, including me. And the worst feeling for me is to be cut out of a tribe, you know, to be guilty without a trial. Mm. For me, that's the worst thing. When somebody judges me or makes a, a story about me that's not true, and I don't get an opportunity to like be on trial and defend myself. Yeah. And that's when I'll get, you know, I'll get like, well, yeah, screw you. Like, who are you to blah, blah, blah. But now in my gosh, older years, although I still feel like I'm 25. And you look 25, Patty. I, you know, now I say, well, there's got to be, it's not about me. This is really not about me. If I'm cut out of a tribe or somebody's not being nice to me or they want to pull their love away from me, it's not about me. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not a bad person. You know, I'm still a good person. There's something going on in their life. And that's been a big switch for me. Because in the past, it's always, that's what led me to depression. You know, if somebody didn't like me or somebody treated me poorly, uh, there was something wrong with me and I needed to change. It was a character flaw. Right. It wasn't just, it wasn't their issue. It couldn't possibly be their issue. It had to be me. Yeah. 
it was always my issue. And I was always the one at fault. Like I could make it better. I should have done something differently. What did I do to, to cause this? Why are they treating me this way? You know, it was all about me, but I've learned it's really not about me. Maybe, you know, Princess Patty thought that everything was about her in a good way and a bad way, you know, but no, it's just not about me. And I'm not that important, (laughs) you know, in everyone else's life. I'm really not. And that's the way it should be. I need to be important to me. That's it. And, And choose your friends and the people that you hang out with wisely. I have just, you know, learned that that's one of the most important things that if you have a friend who you're working harder at or you're, you know, you don't like the way they're showing up or treating other people and you hang out with them, it's going to eat at you and it's not going to be a healthy relationship and it's going to affect my head, not their head, but my head. Right. Great advice. So one last question. I would like you to go back to your 13-year-old, be with your 13-year-old self. And this is like, what would you say to your 13-year-old self right after your father put you on the scale and said whatever he said about you, you know, getting a little, what did you, I can't remember the word, you were gaining a little weight, oh, being overweight and you needed to lose some weight. So if you were standing there at the same time, what would you say to little Patty after your father said what he said? You you know, and my dad would tell me this. Um, he would tell me that I was beautiful, but I would tell little Patty that it didn't matter what anybody else thought about her, that she was beautiful and she was perfectly imperfect. And that's the way she needed to be and that she was going to grow up and be a beautiful woman and help a lot of people. And that her superpower was going to come from all of the things that she went through so she could be empathetic to others. Okay. I love that. And I am I am getting choked up because I could see the emotion on your end, Patty, because when you think of yourself in the little, in the little Patty, I'm sure you just want to give her the biggest hug if you could. And really, yeah, and I do often. and really make her believe what you're saying, because it's, it's so true. But at the time, I'm sure it, it, it hurt like hell, but I am so glad that you are, that you made it here, that you are. 50 something years old. <laughs> almost 56. Holy crap. I'm almost 60, right? Now, Two months, now a month and a half. Yeah. In a month and a half, that little girl became this beautiful woman who's got so much insight to share with others. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable because, you know, suicide is you know, all the topics that we talk about with our guests are, are so they're difficult. They're emotional. It's, it's, they're visceral. They're sensitive subject there. And they could be embarrassing or, or have some shame attached to them or, you know, so many emotions that we want to keep hidden. And I'm just so grateful that we are all willing to share these things so that they can be out in the open. We share them with others who might be experiencing this or have experienced this and can say, yeah, I went through that too. And and I remember that. And you know, maybe offer some insight. So thank you, Patty. Do you have anything else that you would like to say? You know, Kara, I think for any parent that might be listening to how depressed I was and that I had some problems, I think that, you know, if you see your child kind of being withdrawn, if you see your child getting involved, being bullied, if you see your child starting to, you know, go down a path, Try to have conversations with your child about it, like about the emotions, what's going on, the feelings, letting that person know, your your child know it's okay to reveal the feelings behind it. And I think that, you know, it's such a dark, lonely place that it's hard to recognize it when it's going on. But you might see little clues to just pay attention. I think a parent knows their kids. But sometimes parents are dealing with their own stuff, their own life issues, and they're they're not able to kind of maybe separate that. I mean, I've been through, you know, I've been married 25 years and, and my husband and I had a rough time. And it makes you recognize that, you know, parents are people too, and they go through difficult times and they have their stuff that they're dealing with. So to try and be present for, for your child might be really difficult if you're going through your own stuff. But to, to just check in and see what's going on and see if there's some sadness there that might have a layer underneath it. 
Oh, Patty. It's all good. I know it's all good. It just it was so beautiful. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. But I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say. God, what is the word I'm looking for? I'm so glad this is being recorded so I don't have to be perfect about what I say. <laughs> Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese for We Mixed It, LLC. Go to whatsoundsawesome.com. No one will ever know.